Hi everyone, welcome back to Seek First Podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Rick Brown here. Take a minute to subscribe to Seek First Podcast. I really appreciate it. Stick around, I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready, grab your Bible, prepare your heart and your mind, Let's roll. If you have your own Bible, please open to Romans chapter four for our message, My Dad's Faith. Romans chapter four. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. But you know, my dad's faith impacted my life. And it wasn't until I got saved at the age of 19 that I really appreciated the godly heritage that I had. Not only had my dad come to Christ and tried to influence me, which I rejected, my grandparents on both sides drugged me to church. I literally had the drug problem of children that get drugged to church and hate it. And I didn't want to go to church. And I didn't know that it's a legacy that goes back as far as even my great-grandmother. When she came out to bless because she thought death was not far away from her, and she came to lay hands on all three of my older siblings, and I was in my mother's womb, and my mom was about eight months pregnant, and my great-grandmother laid hands on my mom's tummy and prayed for me. None of these things did I know until after I became uh, a Christian. Uh, I was just a little hellion running from God and didn't know any of, any of that stuff. And so my dad's faith and my grandparents' faith, believers on both sides of the family, And yet, in this passage of Scripture, I realize that I have a father of faith that you do also in Christ Jesus that stretches back 400 years, excuse me, 4,000 years, all the way to Abraham. Because this passage of Scripture tells us that Father Abraham is not only the father of the Jewish people of faith, but he is the father of Gentile believers in faith for all generations. And so when we talk about my dad's faith, we want to know what transformed this man's life. We want to know why is he called Father Abraham. If you grew up in church or you sent your kids to Sunday school and they came home singing Father Abraham. I've heard Father Abraham so much. If I, I think I have a little PTSD from Father Abraham. If I hear it, Father Abraham had many sons, and you know, right hand, you get the right hand, then the left hand, and the feet, you know, it's like, and kids love it, and then you all fall down. I was in, I thought it was only for children, and I went to a home fellowship with adults one time, and the leader there wanted to do Father Abraham with adults. I said, that's it. No more Father Abraham for adults. Can we sing something that, you know, adults don't have to be quite as doing an aerobics class for Jesus. Anyway, I share my own trauma from church ministry life. But we want to talk about what are the seven dimensions that he discovered about how a person is made right with God. Because you see, he's going to dismiss, Paul the Apostle is going to dismiss that you can get right with God from good works. He's going to dismiss that you get right with God by religious ritual. He's going to dismiss that you can be right with God by keeping the law. So how do we get right with God? The greatest longing of the soul of a man or a woman is to be in right relationship with God, even when you don't know it. That's what you're searching for. That's what you're looking for your entire life until you come into a depth of relationship and discover it in him. 
That's what Romans chapter 4 is all about. Please stand with me. We're going to read the first eight verses to begin. What then shall we say? That Abraham our father has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Father, we want to tap into this blessedness that by faith you have deposited into our spiritual bank accounts your righteousness. And Lord, we pray that this would be written on our hearts and our minds, that it would cast off the weights and the burdens that we even drug in here tonight, feeling that we have not performed adequately for your smile and your acceptance. Lord, set us free in the power of the grace of God that we experience through faith and your promises. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we want to look at these seven thoughts, and the first one is that it's not by works. How does it work? Well, this is how it does not work. And I want to just briefly mention it, because there are those from cultic backgrounds, uh, Mormonism, the Jehovah Witnesses, people that knock on your doors on Saturdays and ruin your, your day, and, and they all are approaching God by works. And they will take you to James chapter 2. You know, faith without works is dead. And they'll go into this big thing about Abraham and his faith and his works were working together and Rahab and her faith and works were working together. And I want to clear something up and dismiss it quite quickly because James was talking about someone who claims faith, an empty profession of faith without fruit. He's not saying it's faith plus work that saves. He's saying it is faith that works. Meaning that once I'm saved, actually for the first time in my life, I want to do good things for God. They get the cart before the horse. Somehow I've got to work my way to God. And I want to tell you right now that if you came in here, I don't care if you've been walking with Jesus for 40 years. If you come in here earning and deserving in your perspective towards God, you are a defeated, broken, empty, frustrated, crushed Christian in your soul. If you're coming earning and deserving, it is the way of defeat and despair. But if you come believing and receiving, filled with faith and inc inc incredibly joyful, you can't believe that God saved your wretched hide by the grace of God. You're just blown away and so thrilled at God's goodness because of his grace. Now look what the scripture says here. In verse two, as it says of Abraham, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, 
but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. You can perform for people, and they will applaud you. Right? If you get good grades, I'm gonna, your parent, you're going to put, I am the parent of an honor student at this elementary school or junior high, right? And this is the way humans interact. You're a good boy, you get brownie points, you get a, a reward. Well, that's how it used to work in a culture that was based on merit. Now it's like everybody gets a trophy because, you see, we can't have anybody's hurt feelings. We live in a strange upside-down world. But as far as humans go, when you perform well, people will commend you. They'll applaud you. But what we make the mistake in is now transferring that to God. And we transfer it to God, and we say, I've done all these good things for you, Lord. Are you going to applaud me? And the Lord says, your good works are like filthy rags to me. That's what he thinks of them. And I don't want to be too graphic, but because the passage teaches it, he says literally, your good works are like bringing a woman's monthly menstrual clause to me and say, isn't this wonderful? That's what the Hebrew says. And it's quite graphic and vulgar. I apologize, but I think you get the point, right? So the Lord has a perspective that we need to tune into, and Abraham discovered it. Abraham discovered God promised that his descendants were going to be like the stars of the heaven and like the sand of the seashore. And Abraham says, okay, you're a big God. You want to make my descendants? Now, Abram's name meant exalted father, but he had no children. <laughs> Can you imagine the play on what, what's your name? He introduced him, exalted father. You got any kids? No. And then God says, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which means Father of a multitude. Got any children? No. <laughs> Going around introducing yourself as father of a multitude with no kids. But Abraham had this incredible ability. When God said something to him, Abraham says, I believe you because you're God. And your character and your nature cannot lie. And you promised to me this is what you're going to do. I believe it. And it is only with faith, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, that pleases God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Therefore, when you believe the promise of God that Jesus loves you, died on the cross for your sins, was buried, rose from the dead, and if you put your faith in him, you will have everlasting life and forgiveness of sins, and you believe that, he deposits into your account 100% righteous. Now, you can keep going at the works angle if you choose to. It's a very frustrating life. Can you imagine? This week, let me ask you. I'm up here. I'm doing payroll this week for God. We're going to get your hours. What you been doing? How much have you read the Bible this week? How much have you prayed? How much you do, did you give to charity? Did you help your neighbor this week? Let's see if you're going to get a paycheck this week. We're going to see if God's smile on that paycheck is, we go, well, it's been an amazing week. I've done all the above. I'm crushing it for God. Now, if God's plan was for you to do good works to approach him, he would have given us that plan. 
And then we would have just done good works and Jesus would not have had to come. So the reality that you have to embrace is what Abraham discovered is it's not by works. Therefore, as a Christian, you go, wait a second. I thought reading my Bible, praying, going to church, giving, serving others was good. It's wonderful. It's great. It just does not get you accepted to be saved. It's putting the cart before the horse. The reality is grace is the way you enter in by faith into God's grace for full love and acceptance and righteousness. And for growth, I read my Bible and I pray and I exert the energy towards those things so that I can experience the fruitful Christian life. The, the two are different in their purpose and meaning. Because I don't want you to get the idea like, well, I shouldn't read my Bible and pray. No, it's so that you can grow. It's just that even if I read my Bible a lot, even if I pray a lot, I'm already 100% accepted and declared righteous by faith in Jesus. So how can you improve on that? I can't improve on that. I can only grow into it with a fuller understanding of it and become a fruitful individual. So this is what Abraham discovered, Father Abraham. But more than that, David, he now quotes from Psalm 32, after David's incredible lust, adultery, and murder of Uriah, adultery with Bathsheba, and he writes two psalms to basically pour out his repentant heart in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And here he quotes from Psalm 32, says, just as David also describes the blessedness, the happiness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. You see, when David lusted after Bathsheba, he committed adultery with her. She sends him a note that she's pregnant. David goes, oh snap, I'm gonna be outed, I'm gonna be busted. Uriah is one of his mighty men. And so he sends for him to come home so that he'll sleep with his wife. But Uriah's incredible character, he won't do it. He's like, no, I can't enjoy the blessing of my wife with my friends out there. At the, they're battling, they're intense. I mean, this guy's like got a heart of gold. He's, he's some, David's like, well, if I get him drunk, he'll lose his resolve. You know, his commitment. Gets him drunk the next night, doesn't matter. David goes, now I gotta kill him. How do you go from looking at a woman to committing adultery, now she's pregnant, now trying to seduce the husband back to cover up your sin, to murdering him? And when Nathan finally comes to him and says, you know what, I gave you all these sheep, and there was one guy with one little lamb, and you took that one little lamb away from him. And David got so upset at the illustration, he goes, that man should die. And Nathan looked at him and pointed his prophet's finger at him and said, you're the man. You stole Uriah's one little lamb. You have a whole harem of women, David. You took his one wife, one woman. That's all he had. You took her. You see, at that moment, there is no sacrifice. There is no law. There is no provision whatsoever in the Old Covenant, Old Testament economy for David to get saved without being executed. None. Absolutely none. The only thing he can do is cast himself on God's mercy, trust God by faith, and God extended him grace. And David says, you wanna see a happy guy? I deserve to be executed. I deserve death. I'm an adulterer and I'm a murderer and I'm the man after God's own heart. And I think there's few things that can be more conflicting in the soul of a man or a woman when you have had a season of being the man or the woman after God's own heart, and then you fall into sin 
in a grave and serious way, so much so that you wake up one day startled that you could do such a thing. And you think, well, obviously God's done with me, right? No, he's not. Because you see, it wasn't by good works that God, you got accepted. You trusted God by faith. And David did not approach God by good works, but he trusted God by faith. And he experienced grace because of it. And he has this joy of being a forgiven man. And I don't know what you came <laughs> limping in here with tonight, but I want you to know that God's love for you. Notice the two extremes. Father Abraham did a couple of dumb things. He had... He gave his wife a couple of times, gave, gave her away a couple of times. I think that's pretty severe, don't you think, ladies? But, but Abraham didn't have anybody killed. He didn't commit adultery with anybody. And the two extremes, one is, here's a pretty good guy. He had to come to God by faith. And here's an adulterer and a murderer, and he had to come to God by faith. You see, the opposite ends of the spectrum you're not too good to come to God. You're not too bad to come to God. You just got to come the right way, which is by faith, trusting him. He will forgive you. He will restore you. He will give you a new start. He will wash away your sins. He will cast them as far as the east is from the west. He will cast them into the sea and remember them no more. Job says that he'll, tie, he'll put them in a sack and tie it up tight so they can't get out. <laughs> he'll put your sins behind his back so he doesn't see him. You see, faith that transforms you, it's so important. I think, you know, people that are works-oriented, as long as they're doing well, they think, you know, they can keep this up. It's when you fall on your face and you see your humanness and you go, there's no remedy for that except falling on God's mercy and grace. Secondly, it's not by religious ritual in verse 9 it says, Does not this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith with, was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. So circumcision, obviously, is a big deal in the Jewish faith. And, and you know, I know that uh, it, it's mentioned a lot in the New Testament. And for those who are a little bit more puritanical, they, they have a hard time with this. Many Christians uh, are a bit prudish, and they think that, you know, all the human body usefulness stops at the belt buckle. Uh, they don't want to talk about any of the, you know, sexual life or any of those things that God has created. But... If you think about it, I mean, it's somewhat startling, obviously, as a man, that the Lord would say to Abraham, the way that I want you to have a sign and a seal of the covenant of my relationship with you is to cut off the foreskin of your penis. You say, say what? I was pretty committed till this point. I like this whole, I thought it was called good news. Uh, I didn't know knives and sharp objects were involved about my tender parts, right? I mean, think about it. It's, it's somewhat startling, this whole thing. It's like, uh, I was listening earlier to a pastor recently, and a young man in the college group had been reading his Bible through the New Testament, and he saw all this about circumcision, so he came in boldly with his Bible under his arm and told the pastor in his office, said, Pastor, I've been reading in the Bible. 
you know, circumcision's the way you got to get right with God, so I want you to circumcise me right now. <laughs> the pastor kind of took a double take and blinked his eyes a couple of times and explained to him that it was not necessary for him to be circumcised, and he explained why. And let me explain why. You see, the Jews believed that circumcision was what saved you. It's not. Did you notice at the end of verse, uh, there in verse 11, it says that it is a sign, circumcision is a sign which declares you're a saved believer for Abraham's sake, and it seals you, meaning that it is a confirmed deal that's not going to go away. It's a guarantee of the relationship you have with God. Now, the Jews, after Abraham, they began to circumcise their sons at the, on the eighth day. But the whole point is, he's talking to a group of Jewish believers and also Gentiles. And Jew, Jewish believers wanted Gentile believers to get circumcised. You believed in Jesus, that's great, but we must cut off the foreskin of your penis to seal the deal. It's like, well, no. <laughs> the religious ritual for Abraham Circumcision came 14 years after he was declared righteous. So if circumcision happened 14 years later, when was he declared righteous? Because of circumcision? No. He was declared righteous because he believed the promise of God. 14 years later, he was circumcised. The New Testament equivalent of circumcision is you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, repent, and be baptized. So does baptism save you? No. It's a seal, a sign and a seal. It's a sign to others, you're following the Lord, it declares to people, and it's also a seal that God's hand is on you to guarantee the Holy Spirit seals you till the day you go to be with the Lord. It's like him putting a down payment on you. He already purchased you. He's already redeemed you. Now, it's important that no religious ritual can make you right with God. I'll talk to somebody, especially people that grew up Catholic, uh, what, what I call high church, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, whatever, I'll say, hey, are you a Christian? And they'll say, most certainly I was baptized when I was an infant, or I was christened when I'm, I'm an infant, right? Raise your hand if you've been to any of those. You know anybody like that? There you go. And they point to that ritual as their source of salvation. But the Bible says you must repent and be baptized, meaning that an infant, though they should repent, they've got a lot to repent for, Right? All they do is scream at you and poop their diapers and demand everything. But they can't repent because they don't know anything. So they trust in that ritual to save them. That ritual will not save you. It won't save you. I was in a Christian bookstore and they had this fat book. And it said everything the Bible has to say about baby baptism. And I, I'm, I saw how fat the book was. I've read my Bible from cover to cover every year, for years, and the Bible says nothing about babies being baptized. And I'm like, this is gonna be a fascinating read. And I grabbed it, and it was a spoof. It was blank pages. <laughs> the entire book was blank, and I said, well, that's cute, right? <laughs> so there's no ritual that will save you. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and because you want to identify with his death, burial, and resurrection, you get baptized. So, religious ritual can't save me. My good works cannot save me, and it cannot save you. I'm either earning and deserving my relationship with God, which brings me a defeated, frustrated life, 
or I'm believing and receiving and enjoying a blessed life. I'm a sinful man that's been forgiven by the grace of God. That's it. Bottom line, end of story. But what is the purpose? What's the why behind all of this? Why is Abraham the key to this story? It's a declaration because he is the one that is going to reproduce or be the father. You know, there's a deep desire. When I got married, I couldn't wait to have kids when we would finally have kids. It's a real joy in your life to have children and to see this, this son or this daughter that is, you know, this mixture of my wife and I into their DNA and just watching that whole genetic mixed bag come out into the gift of a child, a son or a daughter. And it's also true to reproduce spiritual kids that also have that proper DNA. Now it tells us in verse 11, halfway through, that he might be the father of all those who believe, that Abraham might be the father of all those who believe. If you believe, I believe, he's your spiritual father. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham, while still uncircumcised. So Abraham is going to be the father. He's going to be basically the prototype. He's going to be the icon. He's going to be the ultimate example of somebody who God gave incredible, miraculous promises, and he believed those outrageous promises, and God deposited into his account a right relationship with him. Now, there's one more thing that he wants to dismiss. You cannot experience righteousness by good works, by religious ritual, or keeping the law. In verse 13, for the promise that he would be heir the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law just reveals sin. It cannot give you the remedy. The law is like a thermometer, right? Do you have a temperature? It can take your temperature and it can reveal you have 103 temperature. It reveals that to you, but it can't fix your temperature. That's what the law does. The law reveals your sin with no remedy to fix it. No remedy to fix it. It only points to the ceremonial law, the, the blood that is sacrificed in animals that ultimately would point to Jesus's once and for all sacrifice for all mankind. So when people say they keep the law or the Ten Commandments, you can always just smile. No, they don't. The Ten Commandments just show you what a bankrupt sinner you are. It is a schoolmaster that brings you to Christ. (laughs) If you really sincerely go through all Ten Commandments, at the end of it, you're like, Jesus, have mercy on me. Please forgive me of my sin because I have sinned and failed in every way, shape, and form. The law has broken me. The law has killed me because I, as a sinful man, cannot keep the law. There is nobody that has ever kept the law, save one, Jesus, perfectly. He kept the law absolutely flawlessly. He was the perfect man. 
He never sinned. He never failed. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Now this brings us all back to the main point of all of this. Why would we want to be declared righteous like Father Abraham in the first place? The word righteousness somehow gets lost on the real impact of what your soul needs. And I want to try to talk about it in various ways, shapes, and forms to bring the point home why this is so important to you. I was talking recently to a 19-year-old who's going to graduate college early, very brilliant young man. And I was asking him, I, I really wanted his feedback. He's living on the com- college campus. He's in the dorms, and it's a co-ed dorm uh, floor that he's on at this university. And I'm just, I'm peppering him with questions. Because you know what, at 57, you're, you're a long ways away from 19 and being at the college dorm. And so I said, what do you see? Tell me about your generation. Tell me about your classmates. Tell me about your dorm roommates and what it's like. What do you see the need is? And he looked at me just as if I I had asked him a month ago and he had been thinking about this. He had an answer just loaded. And he said, the number one problem with all the people that I go to school with is the issue of identity. They do not know who they are. Therefore, they come there not knowing who they are, and they just morph with every group trying to find who they are. They're trying to discover who they are. You see, and innately, this is what you and I are looking for, is that place where we are loved and accepted and forgiven and experience meaning and purpose and significance in some realm of life. That's what all of us are looking for. Sometimes when you're young, you don't even know how to put words to it. You don't know how to ask the right questions. This is what you're looking. You're looking for this significance. You're looking for meaning. You're looking at purpose. Because you just go to work and you, you get the check and you pay the bills and you eat, sleep, and hang out with your friends. And you go, is this it? Is this the whole deal? Right? I'm going to do this for 70 years and then they're going to throw me in a hole and, you know, some people are going to sing a little song. And it's all over. That's hopeful, right? That fills me with, yeah, let's go live life. Very exciting. But the gift of righteousness, it means to get right with the God of the universe, to get right with in a way that I can now approach, he loves me. He wants to forgive me. He wants to 100% accept me. He knows who I am, the warts and all, and he still loves me. Isn't that a mind-blowing thing? You know, people, when they date, they don't show the other person all their stuff. Might not even show them in their bedroom because they're a pig. You know, it might be months before they're like, can I see your bedroom? No, we keep that door locked. It's like a toxic waste dump in there. We we hide things because we, we don't want people to really know who we are. Therefore, our identity is is is. It's stunted. It's not formed. So when Abraham believed God and experienced right relationship with him, for the first time, you see, Abraham grew up in Ur of the Chaldees as a moon worshiper. He worshiped idols, him and his forefathers, according to Joshua chapter 24. They worshiped idols. He grew up as lost in his identity, as lost in his significance, and lost in meaning and purpose as any one of us. But when he heard God's promise and he believed God's promise and he was made righteous 
He was right with God. He experienced God's love. He experienced God's acceptance. He experienced the value that God put on him. He experienced significance and meaning and purpose in a way that Abraham had never known in his entire life. And this is what people are looking for. This is what the young and the old are looking for. They don't know it. Because it comes up, you know, that the gift of righteousness is put into your bank account. You're like, well, how's that? Well, that's how it translates. Because now I'm right with God. And all the benefits of heaven now are put into my heart and my soul. For the first time when I received Christ at the age of 19, also not knowing who I was, struggling with identity, meaning, purpose, all those things, when I received the Lord, it was like this flood of acceptance. For the first time I could rest, you know, I don't have to impress or prove myself to another person for the rest of my life. Because I'm right with God. And if I'm right with him, who cares about everybody else? And my sense of identity began in that, that the, its infancy to begin to grow. And that's what Abraham experienced. And that's what each one of us need. And that we're in Christ, our identity begins to grow from that place. Well, how does it happen? Well, we saw it doesn't happen by works. It doesn't happen by religious ritual. It doesn't happen by the law. So in verse 16, we see how it does work. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed God. So it is... God dismisses works, you can't approach him that way. He dismisses religious ritual, you can't approach him that way. He dismisses keeping obedience to the law, you can't keep it. So he says, I've shut down every single avenue to get to me. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, he means you come to him by faith according to grace. So I trust that God has this incredible grace, which means unmerited favor. And since, you know, when you get that knock on the door and the UPS guy's out there or Amazon's out there, now they just knock and throw stuff at your door and run, right? They ring the doorbell and, run, and you go out there and there's, there's a package. Well, you go out there by faith because you know somebody knocked on the door and you know it's Amazon and you're waiting for something or it's UPS and you go out there and there's this gift or you might have paid for it, but there's this package that you open up. And grace is a package that you open up of God's unmerited favor. And I approach God this way because why can I go to sleep at night with total peace? Because I'm perfect and I haven't messed up through the day? No, because I go to sleep in grace by faith. And I wake up in the morning in grace by faith. Which means I go to sleep enjoying God's unmerited favor. I didn't earn it. And I wake up in the morning, hello, I don't have to earn it. And so I can sleep with a rest that I never had before. Because I'm not earning and deserving, I'm believing and receiving what God promised. So if that's the approach, and Abraham gave us that model, you say, yeah, but there's some big obstacles about things that God has promised to do in my life, and I haven't seen it happen. Well, I want you to know that when you believe God's promises by faith, then he energizes by his spirit your will to pursue those promises and Abraham had some ginormous obstacles, maybe beyond anything that you could imagine, and he exercised this faith. So the obstacles of his faith, which 
who gives life to the dead. Now, if God's making promises, first of all, I think he's starting out right out of the gate. Like, I'm going to make a dead person resurrected. I think that's a pretty big promise. You been to any funerals lately? An open casket? Bobby's out, you know, laying in the casket, and if you walked up there, and he just sits up and goes, hello. And he rises from the dead. That's a pretty crazy thing. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he raises the dead. Peter raises the dead. Paul raises the dead. And the resurrection power of God to fulfill his promises, he can do amazing things. And calls those things, in verse, the end of verse 19, those things which do not exist as though they did. God told Abraham, go to a land I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you the whole promised land. The children of Israel didn't get that promised land for another 400 years. But he called those things into existence and said, it's a fact. He said, Abraham, look to the east, the west, the north, and the south. You see everything? Yep. I'm going to give you this and all your descendants. Well, he, didn't, he died in faith not having received it. All he, he bought a grave plot. That's all he bought. But God declared it, things that don't exist, as if they do. God's going to do it. God's promise is going to accomplish it. Verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed. Right now, you might feel in a place that you're, it, it seems contrary to actually hope and believe God for the challenge that you're facing. But in hope, believe anyway, because God is bigger than your problems. God is bigger than your challenges. So that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Think about it. God told Abraham, you're gonna, your, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the heavens, sand of the seashore, and you're going to be the father of a multitude. The three great faiths of the earth all come from Abraham. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They all claim Father Abraham, and the Arab world is also descendants of Abraham. They all claim Father Abraham. So God told a guy that had no children, you're going to be the father of multitudes, and he doesn't have a kid. Now, that's hard to believe, don't you think? I mean, if, why don't we just, why, instead of a father of multitude, why don't we just start with one? How about one kid? That'd be great. Well, God's going to get to that. So in verse 19, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, God's going to give him a kid, but Sarah's 89 and he's 99. When's the last time you saw somebody 100 years old pushing a baby carriage and they say it's our first? <laughs> you look at the wrinkles in their face and you think, is that your great, 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 great grandchild? No, it's our first. Mom's 90 years old and nursing her first baby. 90 years old, Sarah. So Abraham said, God said this, and he goes, my body's dead. At the age of 99, I'm not producing anything. <laughs> nothing uh, vibrant or potent coming out of this body. And Sarah, long past menopause, I mean, the hot flashes are way in her rear view mirror, ladies. And you know, you go through the change of life and all the stuff that happens, and you know, I've never been, I've been, <laughs> I've never been cold my whole married life because my wife always runs the thermostat until she went through menopause. And then it's January in Idaho, it's five below zero, and she's got the windows down going, uh. is it over yet? Is it over yet? That hot flash, can it be done now? As my mom used to say, my minnow is pausing, leave me alone. 
Sarah is way beyond that. Now, how does God promise? You see, he's a supernatural God. You see, the greatest obstacle to you enjoying the promises of God, bottom line, is, is you. The deadness of your own sin, right? My own unbelief keeps me from the promises of God. That's the bottom line. My own unbelief, my own inability. God promises me something, and I look at me, and I look at my weakness, and I look at my stumbling, and I look at my failure, like, that ain't happening. <laughs> because I'm the biggest obstacle to God doing cool things in my life. Abraham didn't look at his own body. He did not look at Sarah. He looked at God. And that's my problem, is I look at me, I look at my situation, I look at this. And Abraham says, no, I'm, I'm not looking at me. I know I'm a dead old carger. And I know my wife, my honey, she's, she's way past, I mean, having kids. God, I look to you, because you've made a big promise and you're a big God. And I want to trust you. Has God put some promises in your heart and your own unbelief and the deadness of your own soul has kept you from really believing those promises? You and I are our own worst enemy. May we take a page. Why is he called Father Abraham? Because he doesn't look at himself. He looks at the one doing the promising. You see, faith is not my faith. It's the object of my faith that makes faith great. It's the object of my faith. God is great. I am not. And as long as I can cling to him for his greatness and my weakness, God is going to do supernatural things through your life. Supernatural things. Blow your mind. He blew Abraham's mind. So much so when he told Abraham at 99, you're going to have a kid. He told Sarah, she's 89, you're going to have a kid. They both laughed out loud. They just started laughing. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Now, I'm not going to call some of you out, but some of you are pretty old out here tonight. If I looked at you as a couple and said, hey, next year this time, you're going to have a kid. Go have some romance, you know. And you're past the age of you. That ain't happening. Just, you would laugh too. Or at least we would all laugh with you or at you. So when, eight, when, when the, the baby's born, they name him Isaac. What's that mean? Laughter. They named him Laughter because that's all they could do when God told them they're going to have a kid is laugh. And they said, well, let's just name the kid Laughter. That fits. Right? Isaac. God, God's got a sense of humor. Verse 20 says, He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but with strength was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that he that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. He didn't waver. He didn't stagger. When God told him amazing things, he didn't go, Oh, that's, that can't happen. No, he believed it. He strengthened himself in faith and said, I love believing the big promises of God. I love it. Because the God I serve is big. And when he promises big, I'm going to believe those big promises. Therefore, that pleased God. And when you trust God and believe his promises, that pleases God in your life. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. The last thought is, this is all available to you and I. What Father Abraham, our dad's faith, from 4,000 years ago, modeled for you and I, we could enjoy as well. In verse 23, now it was not written for his sake only, alone, excuse me, that it was imputed to him, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. This is also for you and I. 
we can have this righteousness imputed to us. We just believe that Jesus died for our offenses. And he raised from the dead to give us justification. Just, justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. I believe that by faith. To me, that's the biggest ask and the biggest promise. To realize who I am and to know I stand before you Though I'm a flawed man on, on my own perspective, I know my weaknesses, my failures, what I should have done and I didn't do this week and what I shouldn't have done and I did do this week and all my failures, and yet God says that I'm righteous in his sight. So taking my eyes off myself, I look at God's promise and say, I am 100% righteous in God's sight. I have no guilt, no condemnation, no shame. I am fully loved, I am fully known, I am fully accepted, I am filled with meaning and purpose and significance and valued by the God of the universe that he has adopted me and called me his child. And when you believe that promise, it's the key that unlocks all the other promises. You've heard the stories of going to the promised land and the promised land flows with milk and honey. This was the promise to the children of Israel. Why was it called the promised land? Because God promised it to Abraham. And when you go there, you would enjoy the blessing of a land flowing with milk and honey. But for the Christian, when you enter the promised land, that means you actually believe the promises of God about you and you begin to enjoy the milk and honey of the full life of the child of God. Father, we ask that you would fill us with a faith that looks like your faith, Lord. The faith of Abraham that you gave to him and you accounted it to him, you deposited into his account this incredible righteousness. To be right, to be fulfilled, to be whole, to have his identity wrapped up in you. Lord, we ask that just here tonight, would you forgive us of our unbelief? Would you forgive us of looking on ourselves in the midst of the challenges of our life and seeing how weak and helpless and inept we are to accomplish anything beautiful and, and just throw our hands in the air and, and give up? Lord, would you give us the faith as Abraham that he did not look to his own dead body or Sarah's dead body. He looked to you who was able to perform the promise that he declared. Lord Jesus, you said that you came that you, we might have abundant life. And so Lord, we believe that big promise that you wanna give us abundant life. Lord, we ask that you'd fill us with your love and your joy and your peace, the fruit of your spirit. We pray for those people that we love, that you would reach them with the power of the gospel and save our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren for a thousand generations because you promised that you would show mercy to a thousand generations of people that, that love you. And Lord, we love you, so we pray for a thousand generations. Those are huge promises, Lord, but you gave them to us and we believe them and we pray that you would release your power and strength through faith in our hearts and lives for those things. Lord, meet each one of us in those places, the obstacles that 
challenges, Lord, the brokenness. For those who are just at the end of the rope tonight, Lord, they're exactly where you wanted them to come, to the end of themselves that they might see the greatness of who you are, that you are the God that raises the dead. You can resurrect that, that marriage. You can resurrect that situation. You can resurrect that relationship, something that's death has come, but you can raise it up. Lord, help us be people that are filled with giant faith and a big God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've seen light in the darkness. I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, 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 whoa. Time's trouble, I keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, 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 I will keep my heart seeking